It's September 9th, 2020. We're approaching the 19th anniversary of September 11th, 2001s, almost 20 years ago. Now, the attacks of 9-11 are a fading memory for many people. If you're watching today and you're younger, they might have even happened before you were born. Nonetheless, the impact of these attacks is still with us today in many ways, especially the ongoing war in Afghanistan. And a question that we should be thinking about is, what are the lessons to learn from that day and from the American response to those attacks? Have we learned any of those lessons? My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow and instructor at the Ayn Rand Institute. Welcome to the New Ideal Podcasts. Uh, shortly, I'll be joined by my colleagues at ARI, Ankur Gatte and Ilan Giorno, to discuss our topic for today, 9-11, learning the right lessons. At this time, I'll welcome Ilan Giorno and Ankar Gatte to the podcast. Uh, Ilan Giorno is ARI's Vice President of Content, and he's also the author of What Justice Demands, America and the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict that came out in 2018. Also the author of Winning the Unwinnable War, America's Self-Crippled Response to Islamic Totalitarianism. He's the co-author with Ankar Gatte of a publication that put together a lot of ARI's uh, writings on the topic of 9-11 and our response to it, which is called Failing to Confront Islamic Terrorism, uh, excuse me, failing, failing to Confront Islamic Totalitarianism from George W. Bush to Barack Obama and beyond. That was in 2016. Later, we'll give you information on how to get a copy. So welcome, Elon and Ankar. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ben. So, I mentioned that this is now 19 years ago. For our viewers uh, who are perhaps too young to remember, how would you summarize the story of the 9-11 attacks? Uh, what made it an event of such historical significance? Well, I would say it, it was one of the deadliest attacks on American soil. And if you think back to Pearl Harbor, many, many decades before, that was, I think, the worst attack. And this one sort of comes close to it. And nothing like it has ever been seen. So if you think about just the details of the specific attacks, so four planes hijacked simultaneously, two of them flying to the World Trade Center towers, one of them into the Pentagon, one of them is downed in a field in Pennsylvania. So I think the whole nation held its breath while these planes were in the air. And then when we saw where these planes were, planes were heading. Uh, I think everyone gasped and shocked and horror just seeing the towers collapse. So this was a, a I think for me, it was a particularly formative uh, moment to see a uh, hor horrifying attack on America with, as we found out later, thousands, nearly 3,000 Americans dead in one day. Uh, so to me, it was a historical moment. And so it, it's just think about the, the event and how horrifying it was. And there's so many visuals you can find uh, if you look up some of the video. But the other element of this, what makes this sort of a really significant event is not only what was done to the United States, but what it followed, what, what was the American response? And I think many people around at the time, there was this, I think, right, uh, sort of right thinking mood that we have to do something, we have to respond, we have to retaliate and never let something like this happen ever again. And I think that was entirely a healthy response. And there was, I think for weeks, you, people just were on that wavelength. And what happened in response to that? What Was that really fulfilled? And I think the answer is 
No, it was, you know, the, the response to 9-11 in the years following, in the days and weeks following, was a catastrophic failure. And it wasn't a failure just sort of in the terms of the military. It was a, it was a policy failure, it was a, fa a failure to understand the problem that we face, the nature of the enemy, and what morally we're entitled to do. So to me, it's, it's these two elements. It's this uh, audacious attack, horrifying attack that was un really evil. And then this inability to respond to it properly. Uh, and, and so just to put this finally, kind of really encapsulate this, you know, we what we discovered is we're facing a, a very weak enemy, nothing like the kind of enemy we faced in World War II, not even remotely close in terms of material strength. And we failed to vanquish it. And this is America, the world's most powerful military, not just today, but ever in, in human history. And we failed to destroy this, this enemy, to eliminate this threat to American life. So to me, that is how I think of sort of that, that moment in our history. And as you said in the, in the, a few moments ago, we're living with the consequences still. Anything you want to add, Ankar? Yeah, I want to take us back to that day a little bit particularly this is uh, for young people who may not even have been born, but certainly might not have been uh, at a near adult enough level to understand what was going on. Um, there was incredible shock in the country and the country ground to a halt. Um, I remember driving to work that day after the second tower was hit and the office was near LA it was a ghost town. There wasn't anybody out. And this is LA where it's traffic jam at noon. Um, there was no cars out. The, the planes uh, from the airport, everything was gra grounded. It was the most eerie feeling of, of it, it's like a, an apocalypse or a zombie that it like all the people are gone. And uh, I mean, the, the stock market was shut down. I forget for how many days it was shut down. The, the country came to a halt. Partly it was just an unawareness of what's the scale of this attack. So we've seen some of the planes, as Alon said, in New York City and in uh, Virginia or DC, uh, the Pentagon. But were there more? Were there more plan attacks planned for the next days and so on? Um, the President Bush was nowhere to be seen for hours, and it, it was just in, an incredible shock. And part of the shock, I think, as, as Alan hinted at, is we're not facing an incredibly powerful enemy. How is it possible that the fight has come to our shores? So I think part of the shock is the, the feeling of American exceptionalism, which is real and has many components to it, that the United States of America is an exceptional country. And part of that exceptionalism is, yeah, the rest of the world gets engulfed in wars. Um, the US doesn't. So even something like Pearl Harbor, it's Hawaii thousands of miles away from the mainland of the US we're separated by two big oceans and that protects us and we work to keep that to protect us that we take the fight um abroad so that it does not come to our shores and here was a enemy that's using box cutters that lives in caves and so on 
and has been able to bring the fight to the heart of New York City, to the heart of our government. And how is this possible? This is partly why there was a tremendous opportunity to rethink our foreign policy as a result of 9-11, because it brought home the utter futility of our foreign policy. Whatever we've been doing, this is the result. It has to be wrong. So Ankar, you described what it was like going to work that morning, but from what I remember, I wasn't working for ARI at the time, but from what I remember, what you were going to work to do uh, was to prepare uh, ARI's response to this. And then ARI mounted uh, a pretty intensive response uh, in terms of intellectual, producing intellectual content about it uh, for uh, months and, and years uh, subsequently. So how would you summarize the uh, response ARI gave and and what was the message what was the position that we were taking at the time i'll say a little bit and alon can add uh, i think why did ari respond in the way that it did and with the energy and resources that it did as you said we put a lot of effort into this and i think we saw it as this is a real opportunity and perhaps the only opportunity in our lifetimes where America's foreign policy might be rethought. So the, I mean, Ayn Rand's view of America's foreign policy since pre-World War II is that it's been a disaster and that it's been, um, it's come at the cost of American lives, uh, American money, American resources, that America's been engaged in an incredible amount of self-sacrifice, of thinking of we have to bail out every nation in the world or the world's policemen. Um, and particularly in the Middle East, it has been a disaster for 40 plus years. And this was an opportunity when people, I think, seriously were ready to reconsider, like maybe what we've been doing is wrong and not just wrong in the details, fundamentally wrong. So there was a real opportunity and the stakes were incredibly high. Um, this was just a taste of what could come if our foreign policy continues to be this bad. And there's a real opportunity to um, protect ourselves from this kind of attack in the future if we changed and changed fundamentally our foreign policy. So we argued a lot and spent a lot of time arguing for the roots of what has led to this, that you cannot see this as an attack out of the blue. And Alon can talk more about that. So that you have to understand what the cause of this was. And if you understand that as an incredible appeasement of the totalitarians in the Middle East, and particularly the Islamists or Islamic totalitarians since the rise of Iran in the 70s, if you think of it as this incredible appeasement so one, you have to understand the cause. And then two, if you understand the cause, you can think about what is an alternative that would protect America and American lives, not sacrifice them. So we spent a lot of time arguing those two things, what has gone wrong and what we would need to do to reverse and have a proper course of action. And to give people a sense of what we were doing at the time. So, if you, you know, for thinking about what it was like 19 years ago, the media landscape was very different. There was no Twitter, Facebook. Um, the web was a thing, but it wasn't as big a thing as it is today. Social media, as I said, was not a, a, 
anything that people knew even dreamt of. So, and, and people still got newspapers delivered. I mean, this is when most people read their newspaper in print. So one of the first things we did, uh, Leonard Peikoff, who was the founder of the Ayn Rand Institute is uh, um, an expert on Ayn Rand's philosophy, the leading thinker on objectivism. He wrote an article that sort of identified what led to 9-11. So the, the, the pattern of American appeasement in the Middle East sort of the moral failure of our policy up to 9-11 and then so what needs to happen going forward sort of a real reckoning with our legacy of, of, of failed foreign policy and, and what uh, path forward what success really looks like so that article appeared uh, not only in the Washington Post but also in the New York Times as a full page ad and you can read that article in the book that Ben mentioned earlier failing to confront Islamic totalitarianism. It's reprinted in that. And you can get a copy for free later on. We'll mention how you can do that. So in addition to this, uh, and so you have to remember, so at the time when people got their newspapers delivered, a full page ad where you, you sort of spell out your position, that's a news making event. And, and the Institute's executive director at the time, Yoram Brook was on, on television more than twice a day sometimes. It was on radio. We were getting radio interviews more than we could actually uh, respond to at some points. I remember doing radio interviews at two in the morning because there were people who wanted to hear our perspective. And our perspective, as, as already noted by Ankar, really stood out in, in sort of the culture because we were pushing hard on the, there's a deeper cause here. Don't, you know, don't look for a, a a smoking gun with one of the intelligence agencies, even if there were errors at that level. That's not the fundamental to be looking at. Uh, and it's not even, you know, it's not only that Bush ignored various memos about Osama bin Laden or that the Clinton, it, they all made failures. This is all true. But you have to go a little deeper than that. You have to go you widen your scope of vision and understand the pattern of American policy that transcends who's sitting in the White House. Uh, so we were pushing on that. And I think it was important to convey, and I think we succeeded to a large extent in conveying that our approach isn't just we're foreign policy wonks. Our approach is a philosophically unique perspective. We're at, we were advocating for sort of a fundamental analysis grounded in facts and evidence, not wishful thinking, which unfortunately is what colors foreign policy so much, but also in our views of what needs to be done and what it looks like to respond. And, and that was framed and, and I think informed by our moral view, the, the idea of moral the morality of, of rational egoism, which comes from Ayn Rand, and sort of what does that look like in, in, in terms of strategy and, and, and application in the military context? At, at a level where you can say it would transform how you approach a military campaign in, in retaliation for these attacks, because that's what the position is. We're retaliating against not just 9-11, but all the steps that came before it and sort of the, the, the intellectual movement, Islamic totalitarianism, that was fueling this, this rise of attacks. Uh, and, and so there's more to say about the road to 9-11, how we got there, but that I think is a picture of what we did at the Institute, why we did it, and I think the impact that we, we were trying to have at the time. Let me follow up a little bit about that. You mentioned the Leonard Peikoff full page ad. The, the title of that article was End States That Sponsor uh, Islamic Terrorism, if I recall correctly. Uh, and you mentioned already that you thought part of the needed response was retaliation. Could, could you say a little bit more about the kind of retaliation that 
you're talking about, the kind of policy prescriptions ARI was recommending, uh, and then maybe say something about uh, whether what the United States actually did amounted to that or not. Okay. I mean, there's two things, two important things to say. Uh, one is at the time, and I think still, unfortunately, people talk about this as a terrorist attack. And it was in, in sort of, it was terrorizing. And it, the people can, carrying out, you can say they were terrorists. But fundamentally, what they were about is not the means. They were about the ends. They were about a certain goal. And we identified the the, the enemy as an ideological movement, which is sponsored by states. And so state-sponsored terrorism or state-sponsored intellectual movement, ideological movement. And those, the primary sponsors of this ideological movement that seeks to impose Islamic rule as a totalitarian system wherever it can, the states that were supporting it and still do are principally Iran, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and at the time, uh, Afghanistan, because it was harboring uh, Al-Qaeda operatives. So our perspective is that you can't deal with this problem without dealing with the intellectual source and, and, and sort of the, the inspiration and financial source of this, which would be confronting Iran, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and, and all of them. And our view was, and I think still is, that you would have to, I mean, if you had to take action, it would be against those primarily those countries and you'd have to coerce them into stopping this and even if that meant war and if it meant war you would have to defeat them uh now there's a sort of sliding scale of how much pressure you need to do because they're not powerful it's it's a, a big part of this is just having the confidence to confront them which we didn't and you asked so that's just a, a little sketch of what i think is the issue so iran is at the center of the problem saudi arabia is part of the problem you asked about what we did in fact, and I think the, there's you know, millions of words we can share about what actually happened and it's, it's a travesty of what needed to happen. Uh, Iran was uh, momentarily designated part of George Bush's quote, axis of evil, and then that quickly disappeared. So this was three countries that he isolated as these are problems. It was Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. That went away very quickly. There was two confrontational uh, Saudi Arabia was never seen as an enemy. George Bush was very friendly with the royal family. He, they, they visited his house in, in, in Texas. And that has remained part of American policy. We do not regard Saudi Arabia as a problem, as sort of a fundamental problem in this context. And other things happened with Pakistan that w made things really bad. We did not treat them as an enemy, we kind of tried to flip them and make them friendly to us. That didn't really go well because they, you know, they, they connived with the Taliban. So from start to finish, there was no recognition of what is the nature of this enemy and therefore where you would have to go to, to confront it. Uh, and the, the other element of this that I think is important just to, to name, we can dig in further, is those, there was and remains real unclarity about who it is we're facing. I mean, I mentioned there's this idea that it's terrorists and we're trying to stop terrorism. And yes, some, one of the things they do is terrorism, but it's not the only thing. It's not the way to understand and conceptualize the problem. It's too narrow. It's actually myopic in how you think of the problem. And when you think of it just as terrorism, you can, it pushes out of view the fundamental, which is these state sponsors, the fact that there's an ideology that they're trying to advance and implement uh, and impose on people. And that they, their tactics might change. And in fact, they did change. I mean, they, they haven't really tried to launch planes into buildings anymore, right? And they've, they've done other things. 
So it, it's, there was a kind of uh, myopia in how we thought about this and it hasn't shaken. It's sort of, in fact, gotten more entrenched. Uh, we don't really talk about the, this ideological character in any meaningful sense uh, since. So that sort of gives you an, an overview. And then obviously we, should, we can talk about the response in, in the US going to Afghanistan and then to Iraq, which I think uh, is worth digging into. I just wanna say from sort of a philosophic perspective, there were two issues that we knew are gonna haunt an American response. And so there are two issues that we hammered on one is a moral issue and it's the dominance of what we call altruism a morality of self-sacrifice it's it's so entrenched in our foreign policy that we're the foremost have in the world so our obligation is to give away all our money our soldiers our resources to the have-nots and that's our role in world affairs it's our role in the un it's our role in every international organization because we're prosperous we have to give away and we can't assert our own interest. And so long as that moral ideal is governing your foreign policy, your foreign policy is not gonna be a foreign policy of self-defense. It's not gonna be a foreign policy that secures the nations and the individual citizens own interest. So we hammered on that idea because it, it's one of the major elements if not the major element of why our foreign policy has been a disaster. And then there's a related and particular idea in, in regard to the Middle East and why it's probably of all the foreign policy areas, the Middle East is the worst for how the US has acted. And that's the religiosity in the US that, that they cannot take seriously a, a theocracy. That is, they can't take seriously that a religion might be animating um, totalitarianism and animating attacks on their own civilians and on everyone else in the world who defies them. So what came out very soon after 9-11 was, oh, but Islam is a religion of peace. And so, but what that really meant is religion's peaceful. Like religion is a positive force in the world, whatever the religion, Islam, Christianity, and so So you can't possibly think there's a link between Islam and war because religion leads to peace. And that's not true. It's not true historically. Um, but if you have that idea, it's what Alan has been talking about, that the, they cannot identify the enemy. Well, that idea, it clouds you completely to what the phenomenon actually is in the Middle East. Who are the aggressors in the last 30, 40 years since the Iranian revolution and why? Like what's the nature, what are they after? You can't understand it if you think religion by its nature is peaceful. And I think it's important just to build on that. It's important that it wasn't just a few colonists saying, oh yeah, Islam is a religion of peace. It, it, there's no way to connect it. Let's, let's not even go there. It wasn't even just, I mean, it wasn't fringe elements of the culture. This was the president telling us speech after speech after speech, let's don't put these together. They don't go together. Violence and religion, violence and Islam, war, they just keep them separate. And he was one, I mean, it was kind of bizarre to watch how strong and, and it, how strong an advocate he was for this view. It got to the point where some of George W. Bush's speeches sounded like he was taking sort of 
exegetical positions on how to interpret Islam. And there are, there are Muslims and former Muslims looking at that and scratching their heads saying, I've lived under Islamic rule. This is nothing like what you're talking about. Who are you to tell me? And so it, it, it's, it was central to the way this was thought about. And I think, as Ankar put it, 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 it really clouds thinking. And so you get that perspective from George W. Bush and who was seen as a very forceful uh, leader on this point. And then you get sort of another kind of view, which is, which is if you associate religion with violence and particularly Islam with, with uh, the 9-11 attackers, you're, you're an Islamophobe, you hate Islam, you're, you're irrationally uh, uh, unable psychologically to deal with this phenomenon, there's something wrong with you, you're a problem, which is also completely wrong. You can't have the view that criticizing or even thinking about the history of Islam and its, its, its conquest and its contemporary applications politically and what they mean and the ideology of the Islamist movement, which tells you explicitly that they're seeking to impose their will by force. So there's kind of two pressure points kind of clouding our understanding, sort of a mainstream political view that don't associate, don't even think about religion and violence, Islam and war from Bush and others, particularly on the right, and but not only on the right, sort of intellectually and, and sort of conservative circles. And then sort of particularly from academic circles as well, you get, don't think about this at all. And if you do, you're a bad person and you're, you're borderline racist or fully racist for just having this kind of perspective that we should ask the question. So you get a, you, you, you got to the point in the culture where we're in two wars simultaneously. The president is telling us Islam has nothing to do with what, with the violence we're trying to, to defend ourselves against. And other people saying, don't even think about that question. And so you can see how America becomes disarmed intellectually in the middle of a military, uh, two military campaigns at the same time. I want to bring us up to date shortly, but before I do that, I have one more question about the early 2000s about President Bush. You, you mentioned, Elon, that most people saw his response uh, to, uh, to these attacks as, as fairly forceful. Uh, Ankar has now mentioned some of the ideas that were motivating his approach, the, the celebration of sacrifice, uh, the deference to religion. What were the consequences of those ideas for Bush's response? And how would you then evaluate that response? Bush's response was in order to keep us safe, we have to bring democracy, and I put that in scare quotes, democracy to the Middle East. That, so there were many, there's a lot of arguments about what led to the Iraq war and, and what it settled on sort of as the basic rationale was we, it, this is a crusade for democracy. We're gonna lift up the oppressed and poor of the Middle East by giving them ballot boxes and, and guarding those ballot boxes until they vote in leaders that we all know Everyone in the Middle East is just a, a Jeffersonian waiting to get unshackled and, and bring to power freedom-loving politicians. And it, as I say it, you might be thinking I'm trying to be sarcastic. I'm not. This is exactly how it was presented at the time. It, nowadays, we look back on it with, with in, in hindsight, thinking, what were these people thinking? And in reality, at the time, this was just put with a straight face. This is actually what people thought. And I, and I, I'm not trying to make it sound any sort of weaker than it was. This is exactly the view. And in reality, what happened is that contrary to Bush's view that 
God has implanted the love of freedom in every human heart, which was his view as stated in, in various places, you have to choose to value freedom. It's an intellectual issue. It's not something you're born with. God certainly doesn't put it in if you believe in God. And what, what happened in reality is that in fact, the idea is dominant in the region. When you brought, when, when the American soldiers went to Iraq and Afghanistan on, the, on this uh, democracy crusade and in other places where we pressured uh, elections to happen, what happened is people voted the ideas they really believe in. And from, in many cases that brought more power to Islamic parties brought some of them into power completely. And in effect, it, it sort of opened the door, kicked open the door to Islamists to gain more power in the region, thanks to American engineered elections in this democracy crusade. So it was, to say that it, it went badly is, is to really understate the severity of the problem. It's basically, we, if you kind of put the two pieces together, on 9-11, we faced concerted attacks from jihadist operatives. And in retaliation to that, what we did is we, we sent American soldiers to, to enable elections so that in fact, jihadists could gain more power. That, that's really the two bookends of that episode. And to me that it, it's a betrayal of America's uh, values. It's a betrayal of the purpose of America's government, which is to protect Americans, not to make our enemies stronger, which is in fact what happened. Uh, so, I, you know, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were, I mean, the debacles, they're real, and they're not, and I don't put the blame at the feet of the military primarily, or the soldiers who were put in the position of having to fight these wars or, or carry out these operations. I don't think that's the fundamental problem, and I, I have a great deal of respect for what they did. They were put in a difficult position. They were sent in to do a job that was undoable, and in fact, it, our policy made those two wars unwinnable. And notice both ideas at work in this crusade for democracy. So there were elections and it was brought up at the time. You're gonna allow Hamas and Hezbollah sworn enemies of the US and of our allies. You're gonna allow them to run candidates and so on. And it's, yeah, who are we to assert our interest? Yeah, it's not in our interest that this happened, but they should do what they want. We're there to bring them elections. Who are we to assert our self-interest? So, and that was taken really seriously. Like we, you cannot do that. That's immoral to do that. So yeah, we allowed candidates who we know were trying to kill us into election. And what is, what's the, what made most plausible the view that, yeah, the majority of the people there are peace loving. It's, it's well, they're so religious. Look at the, how religious and, and sort of entrenched in the whole culture religion is. So if you only get rid of a few tyrants and allow these people to vote, yeah, they're going to be on the side of peace and freedom because that's what religion is on the side of. And that, like, those two ideas led to, from one perspective, as Ivan said, a completely bizarre scenario that we're, we're watching our soldiers be killed so that people can vote for Hamas. And yet, if you take seriously the ideas that are governing our foreign policy, it's, you can predict that this is something like this is what we're going to do if these are our governing ideals, uh, ideas and ideals. So let's fast forward to present day. 9-11 was almost 20 years ago, but uh, it seems like the threat of Islamic totalitarians is still with us. And I, I assume you would argue in part because our response was inadequate. 
Uh, Ilan, Ankar, how would you characterize the nature of the threat that we face today from Islamists? Well, I'll say one thing, which is it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about the Islamic State, which had taken territory in Syria and Iraq equivalent to the size of the United Kingdom in terms of territory. And it was fomenting attacks around the globe. And we were in a position a few years back where the Islamic State had reach across continent and it was not and here's here's the thing that people i think are too quick to forget so islamic state wasn't only big territorially it wasn't only big on social media it was a lighthouse it was a it was like a, a light attracting moths it was bringing thousands upon thousands of people who chose freely to leave their homes across the middle east but in western europe in north america in australia they left freedom in order to live under the caliphate of the Islamic State and to choose to fight and, and live and fight under and die under this black flag. So to me, the, the issue here is that the ideas animating this movement remain potent such that people will cross oceans and continents to join the Islamic State and they, they would emigrate with their children to do this and they would live there. And they would fight and kill. They would go back and, and carry out attacks in, in Paris and other places. So to understand the threat, you have to appreciate that it's fundamentally a set of ideas in people's minds that people choose to accept and, and act on. And the Islamic State was a reminder that those ideas did not go away because they were not defeated. They were not shown at any point in the last 19 years that this is a lost cause. And, and that's really the standard that you want in any kind of retaliation against this kind of phenomenon. It isn't only that you dismantle the Taliban regime. It isn't only that you go after Iran and, and the, the state sponsors elsewhere. What you, the purpose of doing that is to show, is to demonstrate in, in, on people, in a way people cannot ignore, that this ideological cause is a lost cause, is defeated. There's no point carrying on, raising arms in the name of this goal of Islamic totalitarianism. We did not do anything like that. And therefore, these pernicious ideas, the evil, destructive ideas, they live on. And I, I don't know what form it will take. Islamic State has obviously been decimated, lost basically all its territory. It didn't lose all its fighters. I mean, it's about a quarter of the size of it used to be. It had about 40,000 fighters. We don't know how many people are still animated by this and are attracted to it now that they're home, locked down and you know, pandemic lockdowns all over the world, spending their time online, getting you know, deep into the ideas of the Islamic State. So to me, that is the way to think about the nature of the threat. It's still there and it's gonna I expect it to manifest in some other form perhaps, but it hasn't gone away because no one has shown that this is a lost cause and it needs to be, that's really the goal. And, we didn't do that. So you're saying that the threat is still real and needs to be taken seriously, but I suspect, and you hear it more often from a certain segment of thinkers today, that the risk of death from a terrorist attack is so low that it's a kind of distraction to focus on it. Steven Pinker, for example, in his latest book said, you're 350 times as likely to be killed in a police blotter homicide as a terrorist attack. 3,000 times as likely to die in an accident. I suspect that there are people who are listening today looking at the 190,000 people who've died during the coronavirus pandemic who will say, 
3,000 deaths from 9-11 terrorist attack is drop in the bucket. Uh, how would you respond to these kinds of comparisons? Are these really reasons why we shouldn't really prioritize dealing with this threat with foreign policy? Well, a couple of things. One, I, I, just to add to my previous comment, because it connects to this, it, it, it isn't, I mentioned the Islamic State's rise and fall. It, it isn't, it's important to get that that's one facet of this. And Iran, which, which has been galloping towards nuclear weapons, is a major facet. And we've really not done anything with Iran or Saudi Arabia and, and other countries that are, uh, we talked about earlier as state sponsors. So that's a relevant part of the context. Uh, I think the analysis that you're describing that I, I've heard it from other people, it, it, it's very common, it's sometimes thought of as, you know, the, the risk of the, you know, bathtubs or kill more people than terrorists. You mentioned various other kinds of statistics. Um, to me, that way of thinking is, uh, it's odious in one way and it's really mis misbegotten in another. It's odious because I think every single American that died on 9-11 and since, including all those who died on the battlefields on these democracy crusade missions, every single one of them was preventable. They, they should not have died. And, and it's wrong to think of this sort of thing as well. It's just 3,000 people. It is 3,000 individual irreplaceable human beings who have every right to live and whose government's failures led to their being dead, and whose failure to protect them led to their being. And that is a travesty, that is a preventable situation. So to me, I, I find that kind of a calculus, and you hear it a lot, it, it's really odious. The way in which it's misbegotten is that if you, if you just do a tally in this kind of risk assessment view, you're gonna miss the, the full story here. And the full story is that this, I mean, there's a couple of things to say that the, the threat got bigger over time, even if it is not killing a lot of people. So, you know, if we talk, if we zoom back in time to 1979, when I think it was a turning point in our confrontation with the Islamist movement, which was the, so the eruption of the Iranian regime taking over uh, in the name of Islamist totalitarianism, there was a crisis at the US embassy, which I've written about and people might remember uh, which was a watershed moment in the sense that sort of set the tone. You know, the, the, the threat at the time was not significant. We could have dealt with it very easily. And this, the same was true for the following decade. But then what happens is each, each small pinprick attack left unresponded grows and grows and the, sort of the confidence of the enemy grits bigger to the point where you get this cast, this sort of rising spiral of attacks such that in 1993, there's attempts to bring down the World Trade Center towers with truck bombs, which fails. And then in, in, and then in 2001, they fly planes into the buildings. Right? So that you get this climbing series of attacks because there's been no forceful retaliation or response. So if you just look at sort of one element of the picture, yes, this is the sort of the risk assessment perspective, which is very narrow, but the problem keeps growing and bathtubs don't come after you. Bathtubs aren't, sort of animal beings that have goals and can rally people and grow and get stronger over time and take territory. And the same is true of lightning strike. There's, it, it, there's phenomena that happen in nature and then there's things that are man-made that you can do something about. And, and part of what's problematic in this, this kind of calculus is we can do something about the Islamist movement. It's, it's a very small threat in the sense that we could crush it given how strong America is and how powerful we are militarily. 
but we fail to do it and it's going to continue to grow worse over time. Um, so, so those are just a few things I think are relevant for thinking about this. And, and we should mention that I wrote an article about this that people might be interested to get uh, a fuller picture on this kind of issue. I, yeah. oh, go ahead. I just want to say this kind of comparison, I think is almost always, not always, but almost always disingenuous. Um, it's, they already have a conclusion and they then pull this out to try to drive. We shouldn't be immersed in wars in the Middle East, or we shouldn't have a uh, strong, aggressive foreign policy. They already have that conclusion and then they're finding, okay, here's maybe this will convince someone and so on. Um, because notice they don't have it for, just take this year. You can make that argument for police shootings. It's a few a year. Why are you making such a big deal about it? We've got a pandemic going on, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. Why are people protesting? Why are you doing this? is all stupid. And yet the same people who will not say that will say this about uh, in regard to Islam. So it tells you that this is not really what's driving it. Um, and part of what makes it plausible is to think, okay, to do something is to spend trillions of dollars 20 year wars and so on. That's what we would have to do. And then it's sort of, it's so supposed to be a cost benefit, a few people dead, trillions of dollars spent um, over years and years and years. Maybe we shouldn't do that. But this threat, if it was dealt with properly, is easily addressed. And one of the things we haven't mentioned about the, I mean, the way the lesson of the, the killers in the Middle East, the lesson they drew and the way their own terminology, that the US was a paper tiger. Um, and so you could attack it with impunity. Um, they had ample reason to think that from the Iranian revolution, taking um, the embassy and the embassy staff hostage, holding them, parading them on TV. So, and the U.S. basically did nothing, um, a half-hearted attempt by Carter to do something, some strong words from Reagan, who then engaged with um, trading hostages for arms and so and dealing with the, I mean, trading with the Iranian killers. So th they had ample reason to think we're a paper tiger. And if the actions after 9-11 had been Okay, yes, you've had reason to think we're a paper tiger. Our foreign policy has been disastrous. We have not exerted our own interest. That's changing now. And that there was real repercussion that if Afghanistan was just, we're bombing without notice. So the Taliban um, in, and not allowing them to flee into the mountains and so on. And then the warning that anybody who harbors this kind of um, sort of plain clothes soldiers who are being trained to attack us, we're going to bomb you to smithereens if you did You would have ended this threat. And if, if Iran knew that we would attack them um, if they took any further action, you would have ended this threat without 20-year wars and so on. The 20-year wars are precisely because we have no idea what we're doing. We have no goal. We're not concerned with our interests. And you can't, in the way they think about the interests of the Afghanis or the Iraqis, you, you can't achieve their interests. You can't so, sort of magically establish free countries in, in 
places where they have no conception of what freedom is and they don't value it. So the, the alternative is not, okay, just live with some debts or spend trillions and trillions of dollars, massive amount of soldiers' lives and in a war that's in the end unwinnable. Kind of, so it's, it, that's such a false perspective and a, a false dichotomy of those are our two alternatives. I mean, you mentioned earlier that, that you asked about the George W. Bush administration. I think one of the legacies of, of Bush's reputation for being and sort of a really muscular, having a muscular approach to this was it, it made it seem to people like, if this is what it looks like to, to be muscular, who needs this? And in effect, what we've seen is the, so this is your point, Ankar, that if, if, if responding means another Iraq, who needs that? And I think it's a big part of, for many people who haven't really thought about this kind of issue, that's one of the entry points that makes this kind of calculus seem plausible. And the, the argument, who needs another Iraq, it was also part of how the foreign policy world has started, to, has been thinking about decisions such as, what are we gonna do with Iran's nuclear program? And the answer was, well, it's either another Iraq for eternity or we, we sign this appeasing deal in effect. So let's, let's, I mean, that's not how they put it, but that's my characterization of it. And in fact, that was one of the main arguments for, for signing a deal with Iran that I think is really problematic and wrongheaded and is gonna be uh, lead to bad outcomes. But it was on the, on, in the context of, well, you know, what are you gonna do? You, obviously the Iraq approach is a, is a failure. We're never gonna do that again. So it kind of set, it, 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 it gets baked into the way people think and really sort of weakens our ability to respond and, and deal with problems. And let me just say, I wanna actually say one other thing on this issue, because it's, it's important to not just think of the cost as the lives of people killed in an attack. So one of the costs of 9-11 has been that we've lost in the US and really in the West, a significant element of freedom of speech. Um, and you saw that in the aftermath of 9-11 with the Danish cartoon crisis and later with Charlie Hebdo. That, so we've made the point that you could not criticize Islam, but it's at the level of you will not be defended by your government if you engage in speech that is critical of Islam and Islamic religion and more broadly of religion as such. I mean, there's so many people who have been killed or in hiding and the government responses in the West, including the US's response have been pathetic in regard to that. And so when people talk about self-censorship, what that means as a legitimate concept is people don't speak what they actually think because they don't think the gov their government will protect them. They will protect their right of the, to exercise their freedom of speech on these issues. And it's particularly in regard to criticism of Islam. And that's, your right is gone in regard to this. So that you, and it's, it's, a, it's a massive loss. A lot of people have talked in the, in, the, in the last decade about freedom of speech seems precarious, but it's worse than precarious. It's been lost in um, really throughout the West. And that's a result of the failure of our response to 9-11. So we're coming up on about 10 minutes left. Uh, I do want to leave some time for questions. 
Um, I want to ask you all one more question, but before I do that, uh, just let people know in Zoom, if you want to ask a question, best way to do that is through the Q&A module, hover over your screen, click the Q&A button. We've got a few pretty decent Zoom questions already. Uh, and don't forget about Super Chat questions. Uh, let, let me thank Jonathan for your donation on Super Chat. Thank you and you're welcome. Uh, and let's close with this one. When, when ARI put forth its position in 2001 about what the government should do, it did so making a prediction about what would happen if it didn't do what it needed to do. Do you both want to comment on where you think our predictions have borne out, where we were right about what was going to happen? Was there anything that we were wrong about? Uh, you know, one thing, I mean, several things we, we think we got right is that the, the sort of the pattern of failure will continue because the ideas that were driving it have not been changed. And so we were operating on this idea of sort of informing our policy was the idea of altruism that we're a have, we have to give up for the have nots and that we can't challenge, we can't rethink really clearly about religion and its practical implementation. And I think that we flowed into what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan and the way those wars were conducted. And I, I've written about this, Ankar's written about this, we've had a lot of <laughs> coverage of this sort of issue, which is the way our soldiers were uh, instructed to conduct themselves in battlefields really reflected the idea of self-sacrifice. They were not permitted in many contexts to, to defend themselves in the face of hostile fire. They had to put the lives and interests of, of local people ahead of their own safety. And just many ways in which the idea of self-sacrifice permeated uh, America's conduct in the war. I think that was borne out and horrible consequences to that on the people who went to fight and came back and the scars that they carry psychologically. I think the other one is just that the idea, I think we were among uh, the number of critics, but I think the most forceful critics of the idea that the solution is a democracy crusade and what would that look like in practice and, and just challenging the idea that there are latent freedom lovers all over the Middle East. I think there are people who want freedom in the Middle East. They're a tiny minority and in battle. They're not the majorities who went and voted and brought Islamists to power. So I think those are two, two ways in which, you know, we, we, we took a stand and I think it was borne out by the evidence over time. What we got wrong, I'll put it at least what I think I got wrong is, so I thought if, our foreign policy continues as it has been um, in the last, I mean, really since the Iranian revolution, if it continues after 9-11 like that, it's going to be really bad. Our response is gonna be ineffectual uh, and it's gonna accomplish nothing. It's, it, what it accomplished was worse than nothing. I couldn't believe how bad the aftermath of 9-11 was. The one way Dr. Peikoff put it, he used one analogy once about after 9-11, there was a real chance for us to change course. And it was like we have a gun with a bullet in the chamber. And what Bush did was instead of pointing it at the enemy, he pointed it at the ground and fired into the ground. But I actually think what we did was we fired it at our own head. Um, now, Bush on many things wasn't very accomplished, so he didn't kill us. But it, that the response was, it, 
undermine the U.S. even more. It's it's hard to remember that, or sorry, it's easy to forget this because to, to want to forget this. But after 9-11, there were many, many more attacks. There were attacks in the London subway, there were attacks in Spain, there were attacks, and uh, including on U.S. soil. For it was There was growing attacks. And then if you take, I found the Danish cartoon crisis unbelievable, that here you have journalists publishing cartoons. This is after Islamists have attacked in all kinds of Western countries. And what you saw is a manufactured crisis in the Middle East with embassies being lit on fire and so on. And the Western leaders were falling them over themselves to say, well, yeah, I guess we provoked them. And why do they have to publish these cartoons? And so, and if you thought after 9-11, just five years later, that's going to be our response when people animated by the same cause are burning embassies throughout the Middle East and, and, and threatening journalists and they're in hiding. And, so, and our response is going to be to criticize the journalists. If you told me that after 9-11, that's what we're, I would say, I would say, no, that's fantastic. Even if our response is not good, it's never going to sink to that level. And yet it did. So for me, it was, uh, it it was even worse than I could imagine post 9-11 that, yeah, I could imagine our response being bad, not that bad. I have to say, I, I wasn't surprised that it was that bad, <laughs> but maybe I'm just a pessimist. Um, let's take a few questions from Zoom. I think that the, the question from Emmett is perhaps a good one to start with, uh, where does the idea that religion is peaceful come from? It seems like a fairly recent idea. I mean, it, it's not a recent idea. From the outset of religion, it's presented as this is what you need to live a moral life. And it's peaceful for the believers, at least. Um, what, what they think of infidels and so on is a different issue, but it's really only with the Enlightenment and some of the leading Enlightenment thinkers that they grasp, yeah, there's a real connection between religion, religion as such, religion meaning accepting ideas on faith without evidence, even that it, when it defies what your actual evidence is, that there's a relationship between doing that and using force. That if you don't deal with yourself and with your fellow men by means of arguments, then what's going to, why, why does force wrong? You've in effect forced yourself to believe something. Why can't you force other people to believe the truth or the, the revealed word of God? So it's a, what's the new idea, historically speaking, is that religion is intimately connected to the use of force. And so in the Enlightenment, you got an explanation. Why has Europe been torn with religious conflict? Why are the Catholics and Protestants killing each other? Why do different Protestants kill each other? Why is there this kind of animosity? And it's something inherent in religion, particularly religion when it's taken seriously as the whole guide for life. And that attitude's been revived and it's been revived in the 19th and into the 20th century when religion started being taken more seriously again 
that it's, I mean, it's hard to sell a religion if you say, well, yeah, and this leads to war and poverty and so on. So it's, there, there becomes this kind of view and with the US as one of the most religious of the Western countries, um, it becomes, it becomes plausible to people to think this, but it's a revival of an old idea. It's not some new idea. Let's take a look at uh, Tom's question. Who's the greater danger, the Islamic totalitarians or the communist Chinese, or are they both simply parasites on the West's weakness? Maybe some of the things that you just said, Ankar, bear on this. Um, yeah, so I think the, the last part of the question that it's parasitical on a US weakness, a, a real understanding of communism, I think, views it as it's a secular religion. And though I think of China today as not communist in the sense that what they're preoccupied with is, um, is an, uh, imposing an ideology on the populace, they're incredibly authoritarian and in that sense totalitarian, that they want total power over the populace, but that power is not being exercised now to try to stamp an ideology in to, to people's minds as it was when you think of communist Russia and all its satellites and communist China. So it's authoritarian and still totalitarian, but not, uh, I think, essentially communist. It's not, it's much more nationalistic now, I think, than it is uh, communist in terms of the, the kind of ideological trappings. And yes, both gain power because of the inability of the US to understand um, the enemy that it faces and the unwillingness, but as we've said, it's a moral unwillingness to exert our own interest. Um, and it, in, that, in that sense, we remain the most powerful country in the world. And if we had a foreign policy that that was premised on protecting our actual interests, we would not face the threats that we face, whether from China or from the totalitarians in the Middle East. I think we have time for one more. So here's a practical question perhaps for the, maybe a number of our viewers are thinking about. Out, someone asks in Zoom, outside of putting pressure on our elected officials, what can individuals do to move the needle when it comes to our foreign policy? We hear that it's not about politicians, it's about changing the culture and the politicians will follow. One would hope that foreign policy change would then follow as well, but is there anything we as individuals can do beyond that in a more direct manner? I, I mean, I, I'll say something and maybe you wanna to add to this, Onkar. I think it's very hard to change foreign policy. I think there, the question is on the right track, which is you need cultural, political change, intellectual change, and then policy is downstream from that as a consequence of that. But that doesn't mean there's nothing to do. I think it's important for people to speak out and to, to first to become educated about what the issues are and understand them as best they can, and then to speak and tell people and exert pressure on their uh, elected officials to say there's a different perspective here's a better way to do this so this was a mistake and here are the problems sort of the source of this mistake and how to correct it and I think it's it's really 
powerful when people do that. that that's part of what we do. I mean, we try to educate people on what the fundamental issues are and to kind of push in that direction. Uh, I don't think the idea is that tomorrow the, the foreign policy of the United States will flip into something completely rational. It, it just takes a lot more time than that. Uh, so I think those are some things to think about in terms of what it looks like to have a better approach. Because fundamentally, the problem is a moral, intellectual, philosophical problem that we're talking about this last hour in terms of our foreign policy. It is not, it's not that we don't have enough educated people running foreign policy. Oh, we're super smart. It's the ideas shaping what they do and and the moral values that inform policy that need to change, I think, fundamentally. And uh, I think on this issue, so I agree, uh, Alain brought up to, to write to and communicate with your elected representatives. On this issue, and particularly after 9-11, but after means like at least a decade um, after 9-11, it was, talk to your fellow citizens that th this was often a topic of conversation because it was so much um, in the headlines and rightfully so that people have an unwillingness to talk about this issue and for some of the what Alon brought up before you'll be smeared as an Islamophobe if you talk about well isn't there a connection between Islam and the way that it's held by the rulers in Iran and the, the their whole um, decade-long mission to spread Islam through the world. So it's you have to talk to your fellow citizens. So the politicians both respond to you. That's part of the, the reason to write to them. But they spawn, respond more generally to the mood in the country. And if you can help change the the viewpoint in the country. Uh, you should do so. And as, as we talked about a little bit, after 9-11, there was a real opportunity that people were willing to think, okay, yeah, maybe what we've been doing is wrong. Maybe there's some better ideas out there. And it's not just communicating those to politicians, communicate those to your fellow citizens. And sometimes the conversations are difficult and so on, but they need to be had if you want to change people's minds. Well, we should wrap up. Ilan Giorno, Ankar Gatte, thanks so much for sharing uh, your thoughts and your experience on this issue. Um, I'm going to share some resources now with our viewers. Uh, Ankar just mentioned the need to talk to fellow citizens about this issue. And I mean, one way to do that, I think, is to, is to share some of the intellectual content that, that ARI has produced. And we've actually come up with a way to make that pretty easy. Um, we are offering a free uh, ebook version of failing to confront Islamic totalitarianism to anybody who today goes to the link that I've just put on the screen, newideal.einrand.org slash ebook hyphen free. Go there and uh, if you give us your email address, you'll get a link to a downloadable PDF version for free uh, of this 2016 book that collected together lots of ARI's commentary on this issue over the years. Uh, that came out in 2016. I also want to mention a more recent article that Ilan authored in 2018. This is one of the uh, premier articles when New Ideal came out online. Uh, the article is called Jihadists Understanding the Nature of the Enemy. That really brings the analysis from that earlier book up to date, giving us a picture of what the Islamic threat looks like on the world stage today. And you can get that by going to New Ideal. Uh, or to this short link I've created for bit.ly slash jihad hyphen enemy. Um, otherwise, 
Uh, if you enjoyed our program today and want to continue following us, best way to do that is to follow us on YouTube. Click on the red subscribe button to be able to uh, follow the latest videos and get a notification. You'll get a notification if you click on that bell button as well. Finally, if you have thoughts on today's program, questions about the material that came up, or ideas about other topics that we could do in future web episodes of New Idea Live, please shoot us an email at newideal at We read all of the emails that come in. So thanks again very much. See many of you again next week for another episode of New Idea Live. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.